0: You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. Featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood Redefined. From Los Angeles, California. Presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood Redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now the host for Black Hollywood Live Justice is served.
1: Hello everyone, I
2: am Mari Fagel my <laughs> Apparently, like several Mari's. Right? Yeah, that was cool. That was me showing up several times. <laughs> As I was trying to say, I am your co—I am your host, Mari Fagel, joined by my lovely co-host, <laughs> Ebony Williams. This is Justice is Served, and uh, we're just going to jump right into it. Yeah. Our case of the week this week—I emailed you about this, Ebony, when I read about it Monday morning, and I said this has to be our first discussion this week. Sure. It's the shooting death of Jonathan Farrell and when I read this case, I was outraged and very, very sad for this family because mm-hmm. I think the events leading up to this man's death, this young man's death, should shock everyone. He was a former uh, football player for f- uh, FAMU. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. And um, he got into a car accident around 2.30 a.m. Saturday morning. His car went off the road. He was able to escape one near-death experience. He had to break out the back window of his car in order to escape. He walked a half mile to the closest home and began banging on the door of the neighbor who he found. I understand that this neighbor may have been frightened. She opened up the door expecting it to be her husband and saw a stranger standing there, you know, 3 a.m. in the morning, and she was frightened. I understand that. She called the police for a break and enter. What happened next is what has me outraged because he was obviously just trying to seek help. And he was walking towards her pool and the cops stopped him. And luckily, I want to get your opinion on this because luckily we have the dashboard video of what happened next. He was approaching them, obviously for help. He had just gotten into a car accident, was approaching them, was unarmed no criminal record. He was approaching them and wouldn't stop when they said stop. They tased him. Okay. Then one of the officers, Randall Carrick, shot at him 12, 12 times. 10 of the shots hit him and he died at the scene. So this is also a story from North Carolina, where you practiced as a public defender. So I want to ask you what your initial comments are on this case.
1: Yeah, Mari. I mean, I think, uh, to say this hits close to home for me would be an understatement. Uh, not only did I practice law in North Carolina, I'm from North Carolina. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. I grew up in this city. Um, and it, it just absolutely shocks my consciousness that, that an officer in any capacity would think it justifiable to shoot at any person 12 times, uh, least of all someone who was unarmed, uh, and, and have this type of result. So a lot of legal um, complexities here in this uh, issue. And I guess one of the first things we want to start with is some of the, the way in which this, because of course this happens and immediately people think of Trayvon Martin and they think about another young black man uh, seemingly senselessly killed. One of the things that distinguishes this case already from the Zimmerman and Martin uh, case is the fact that there was an immediate arrest uh, here. What we we saw that did make me um, a little satisfied was a very immediate response from the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. And you have the uh, chief of that department, uh, Rodney Monroe, who I dealt with uh, during my time in Charlotte. He had just been uh, appointed chief. Of police there in Charlotte, having an immediate response, immediately coming out publicly and saying that the police department was not supporting the actions of this officer and that they were saying that it indeed, in their eyes, was unjustifiable. Uh, now we're gonna talk later. We're gonna be joined with a very special guest, the man who is representing the family of the deceased here, uh, representing the Farrell family. His name is attorney Christopher Chestnut and Chris represents, um, Many high-profile wrongful death cases, uh, including, again, dealing with FAMU, uh, the wrongful death of a a student who was hazed to death uh, there a couple of years ago. So we're going to get Chris's take, who's also seen the video, and and, and he has some, some interesting things to offer. But, again, the justifiableness, I, I see them struggling to make that argument, uh, Mari. And that's ultimately what this case turns on. Now, when we initially reached out, because I really wanted to speak with someone from the district attorney's office in Charlotte, uh, this case has actually been turned over from the district attorney's office, and it will be handled by the state attorney general's office. And that's really important because – and I, we'll get uh, Attorney Chestnut's opinions on his take on that too – there's a reason why. As soon as I saw it, before I read the reasoning, because that's now come out. But I, I knew it. I knew that there was an issue of a possibility of a conflict of interest. When you're talking about a district attorney's office and a police department, they're separate entities. But when you get in the courtroom, you see they work very closely, hand in hand. Um, oftentimes, when I would go into the courtroom as either a public defender or a private defense lawyer, you would see the DAs talking with their officers and not necessarily – collaborating, but in a way making sure that, you know, the officer is instructed the DA on the facts of the cases. They see it and the DA kind of goes uh, accordingly. When you've got that close of a relationship, Maury, between your prosecutor's office and your police department on a daily basis, that's going to give some great concern to uh, the outside community because it could look like impropriety. It could look like a conflict of interest. And luckily, uh, the S- Charlotte Mecklenburg District Attorney, Andrew Murray, uh, he he had the foresight to know that and say, so, you know what, this is going to this is a high profile, it's a national profile case. People are watching what we're doing with this very closely. I don't even want the the appearance of impropriety, so that's why I'm, I'm having Roy Cooper, the uh, Attorney General, step in.
2: And it's it's not even that they work so closely hand in hand at the present time. It's that the district attorney, the law firm that he worked for prior to being elected, is the law firm that is currently representing the police officer in this case. So that is cool. the. Issue issue of impropriety as well. And so there as well. are certain as well, things. Though, but
1: I, I do want to say that 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 for us, you know, when you walk into a courtroom and you've got your DAs and your officers talking on a daily basis, because that's that's the reality. That's what's going on in these courtrooms every day, Mari, And People do get concerned about that because it does look like, is this a gang up type of situation? And because of that, yes, you're absolutely right. Andrew Murray's actual firm was involved here. So it's even more so. But even but for that, even if not, I still think the move would have been to take this to the AG's office.
2: And that's why there are two things that I commend Mm -hmm. in that he was charged so fast because this just happened on Saturday morning and charges we already saw were filed Monday. And also the AG's office is handling it so that there is no issue of impropriety. So I think that they're on the right path towards justice, but – I think that I want to ask the attorney when he calls in, I think the video, the dashboard cam will sure. be key sure. because there have been reports that his hands, that Jonathan Farrell's hands were up. Right. So he was walking towards them with his hands up and I can only imagine that he was asking for help. I understand they said stop, but what happened between tasing him right. and then using an actual gun to shoot at him? 12 times, 12 times. And so, you know. Well,
1: and that's why, again, the justification argument to me fails, because in order for this to be valid, an officer can use deadly force. He absolutely can. If and only if he can make a convincing case that he felt he was in reasonable apprehension of imminent harm or danger himself. I don't know how this officer can even begin to make that argument when you've got an unarmed man, even if he didn't stop on command, as you said. And we'll we'll see the video and we'll get different interpretations because they are seeming to be some conflicting reports concerning whether or not this man did stop on command. But even if he didn't. There's no weapon. What type of imminent harm do you feel like you're in that would justify 12 shoot, twelve shots?
2: And, you know, the NAACP this week commended the quick charges. But they also said that they think it comes down to an issue of race because this woman opened up her door, 2.30 in the morning, saw a black man standing at her door. Sure. The cops saw a black man on her property walking further, t- further in her property towards the pool. And... The question has to be asked, if this was a white person, would it have gone this far? Would this have happened? So it's sad that we have to have this dialogue over and over and over again. But I think, like you said, we have at least learned a lesson from Trayvon Martin's death in that charges were brought so fast as opposed to several months. I
1: agree. I mean, I think that that's a good takeaway. But let me ask you, Mari, obviously, as a white person, when you first read this story, was the issue of race, did, did that lens immediately come to mind for you?
2: Yes, in that why else if, you know, if I came running to a woman's door at 2.30 in the morning and I said, I just got into a car crash. I need help. Please call the police. I need help. I'm injured.
1: Right. She's probably not going to go pick up her phone and say someone's breaking in and entering into my property. Yes. Point and I'm taken. not
2: I'm not faulting her. Right. I am faulting the police of for course. the provocation of what happened. Of course. So I'm not faulting her for the initial call. I understand even if a white man was standing at your door at 2:30 in the morning banging on the door viciously. You you know and you think it's your husband and then you realize it's not. You know, but you know, I just think that what what happened wouldn't have happened if it was right. a white person.
1: Well, I I to- totally agree, particularly when it comes to the actions of this officer. And I think this is this this greater thing that probably troubled you when you first read the story, I know troubled me and many others. It's this kind of notion that when the suspect is a black man, particularly a young black man in this country, the the mode of operation seems to be shoot first, ask questions later. And that is costing us dearly in terms of lives of young black men in this country. And, you know, you talked about in the intro of the case, Mari, this is not just some common street thug as they tried to eventually paint uh, Trey, young Trayvon Martin. This is a guy who's 24 years old. He's a college graduate. He played football at the University of uh, Florida A&M University in uh, Tallahassee. He worked two jobs. He was engaged to be married, had just moved to Charlotte one year ago. And, again, I'm laying out all these facts like this because... And no criminal record. Of course. No criminal record. I mean, this is the american dream you know what i'm saying seriously and this is how when when we get attorney he chris Chestnut. wanted to be chestnut, an automotive engineer yeah on the phone it's very important that and i just want to talk you know break down some of the legal players in this game so chris chestnut he's someone i've known personally for 10 years uh, i knew him back when he was a second year law student he knew me before i even attended law school he's a fantastic trial attorney um again Stellar reputation for representing people in wrongful death. And I think it's very important that Chris, who is a young black man himself, relatively speaking, uh, is representing this family because he will be able to really speak to the person of of this young man, of Jonathan Farrell. And that's something that I felt like was was blatantly uh, and erroneously absent when we talk about uh, the, the Trayvon Martin case. Trayvon was never personalized in a way that jurors could connect to. And that's very important, Mari. I can't even underestimate how important it is for the jurors to understand the wrongfulness of the death because they can connect with the victim.
2: I think in the Trayvon Martin case they tried if you remember you know the first witness called to the stand was the little boy who was with Trayvon Martin that night before the he girl. left um I think it was uh, the boy who he was playing like playing games with before he left to go to the Seven Eleven store okay. to go to the okay. store he was the first one on the stand mm-hmm. and it kind of like personalized it. he was just you know doing kid things that night um and you know I think they tried but they failed. I no, think they, they, they to do failed. Add. Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's really important uh when you're when you're talking about this because you've got to get the jurors to see how unreasonable this these officers actions were in the case of, of George Zimmerman George Zimmerman's actions were and that's really important. Likewise though, uh the officers uh the, the, when police officers are charged by this uh our listeners and viewers should know they have a bureau that basically kind of supports their legal representation for them and the firm that was hired to do uh, the representation for this officer. I know both of these uh, lawyers. Uh, they're both great lawyers, uh, George uh, Lincoln LaRoe and also Michael Green. George, uh, he's a fantastic criminal defense lawyer. Michael Green is actually a black man. Very important. And I'm not race baiting when I say this. I'm saying that to say that it's going to be important for this young white officer who has gunned down an innocent young black boy in order for them to try to, uh, you know, take this argument away from the racial framework, it's very important that a black attorney is going to be standing in front of those jurors to make that argument for this white officer, uh, and, and, and because people are visual, and that's very, very important.
2: And I also think, in terms of telling the story, and we'll talk to Chris Chittins not, not about this. The facts are in his favor in that. Trayvon Martin, there was so much of the emphasis on the Skittles and iced tea. What happened leading up to it was so innocent. What happened leading up to this was what got me outraged. He escaped a near death experience only to die. And that's what was so hard for me. I mean, his car ran off the road and you know, we're not sure what happened leading up to the accident and why that accident happened but he had to kick out a back window in his car and walk a half mile to help and that's what when I was reading that that's what broke mm. my heart is mm. that he struggled and was seeking help yeah. and then died and and that the facts leading up to it I think you know that that portrayal will also help the jury,
1: you know. Well, I think that and also the fact that there's video. I mean, I think that's, we all... That, well, that'll be, I think <laughs> yeah. that'll be
2: the key. I think that'll be the key to the case and to I the think, verdict.
1: Yeah, I but... mean, because I think that's ultimately why the Zimmerman verdict came out that way. No there one knew. There was only
2: earwitnesses, yeah, essentially. Yeah, no, no
1: one knew. No one knew exactly what transpired between those two individuals. Here, there is a video. We know a lot more and I, I, I just don't see this. And again, I know these lawyers, Mari, they're very, very good. I mean, they're some of the best Charlotte has to offer. Um, But it's still an argument that you've got to make that's reasonable in force. And I don't see anything about uh, an unarmed young man probably screaming for help, as you said, probably hands up, even if not, even if he kept coming and didn't stop on command. What about that put Officer Carrick in the mindset of, I'm not only in reasonable danger of some type of harm, but the harm is so great that it justifies deadly force. Twelve that's times. The, that's, deadly
2: force twelve times.
1: Yes, that's, that's the bar.
2: And the video will be key because... Jurors like something more tangible. In a lot of these cases where there are acquittals, it's because jurors in this CSI era they want something that they can really hold on to. You know, DNA evidence, things like that, and you have forensics. yes, 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 and the Trayvon Martin case, it was a lot of circumstantial evidence. And here there is a video that they can watch and they can decide for themselves. Even if different people, different witnesses are coming up to explain what happened, they have video of what happened. And I really think that will be key. And when that video will be released for the public to see and to make up our own judgments, we'll see.
1: Absolutely. And I don't think it's remiss to uh, also point out again that the actual chief of police in Charlotte, uh, Rodney Monroe, has come out and said on behalf of the department, They don't believe these actions were reasonable. Now, it's not determinative, but if you had a police department backing the officer's actions, saying, well, this is how we train them. This This is a circumstance where a reasonable officer on my force would have acted accordingly or similarly. That can be persuasive to jurors. You don't have that here. You've got this chief of police saying... You know what? That's out of bounds. That is not anything that we train. That is not anything that any other officer on this task force would have been expected to do. And that also will go to uh su- sully the argument that anything about this officer's actions was justifiable because his own chief of police is not even supporting his actions. It's not good. It's really not good. Um I will also say the fact that the AG has stepped in and, and Roy Cooper will be handling this from the attorney general's office. There are a lot more resources when you're dealing with the attorney general's office. That's, you know, that's that's a state level uh, operation there. It's much it's going to be a much more thorough case than we would have seen in Charlotte Mecklenburg. You know, and Charlotte is the biggest city in North Carolina. They do have the most resources um, and it's a pretty efficient run jurisdiction. But nothing beats, uh, you know, the state's level of operation. Mm-hmm. So I, again, I'm very happy to see the AG step in and. Uh, You know, that's how important this case is. That's how high profile it is. And I think that there are lots of people watching this case across the country because they don't want to see, um, you know, a repeat of some of the missteps that we saw in Zimmerman trial.
2: And another case that it reminds me of with even more egregious facts here is the Rodney King case. And Hmm. so 20 years Ago That happened, obviously. And so we'll see how far the nation has come in terms of having a discussion about it in the reactions to it once the trial takes place, once the verdict takes place. Right. I think there will be those comparisons as well.
1: I think so. I think there will definitely be Especially comparisons. Especially for people there. in Los
2: Angeles who were here for the riots and remember exactly what happened.
1: Yeah. And again, ultimately, whether it's Rodney King, whether it's uh, Trayvon Martin's death or in this case, Jonathan Burrell's death there's this overarching conversation about, at least within the black community for many people, the value of the black life. That's that's ultimately what this comes down to in, in emo- an emotional way. And... I think people are just ready for there to be some type of public statement that says it's a value. It's a value. And and when you take that life, there's a consequence for it. And that's why I think why so many people were so heartbroken by the Zimmerman outcome. And, And I understand it legally. I felt like I understand how the jurors got there. But I also understand how empty that verdict felt for people because a young boy lost his life still. And there was ultimately no accountability for that. And that feels... In equal, that feels unjust. Um, and that's, that's really the rub.
2: A young boy lost his life, and the man who is acquitted has continued to flaunt <laughs> his lack of values. And what I'm talking about is I, you know, I talked about this on my spreecast, um, my Wild About Trial spreecast last week was George Zimmerman and the domestic violence dispute between him and his soon to be mm-hmm. ex wife. And The things that he has done since the acquittal, he went to a gun facility, the same gun he used to shoot Trayvon Martin. He went to that gun facility and there's pictures of him posing with an employee there. Do you know how disrespectful that is? Even if he was acquitted, even if he is innocent in the eyes of the law, that is so disrespectful. And he just doesn't know how to, you know, stay undercover and keep quiet. (laughs) Casey Anthony, we have not heard from at all. I'm not saying she's a good person, but at least she has remained under the eyes of the public and the media. And George Zimmerman keeps coming up and up and up. Two traffic tickets, fine, speeding, you know, gun in the dashboard. Breaking and smashing your ex-wife's or your soon-to-be ex-wife's iPad, you know. And, uh, you know, there were issues about whether he had a gun with him and whether he was threatening his father-in-law with the Mm -hmm. gun. But, you know...
1: I think the uh, distinction, Amari, is I don't think George Zimmerman felt like he did anything wrong. After all this that we've been him. He's a vigilante. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he honestly yeah. feels like, I'm sure if we called him in here today, he would say he felt like he did that neighborhood a service that night. He got rid of them that always get away with it. I mean, let's look at his language for God's sakes. And, and I don't think we ever saw him move from that position at no time. You know, he never testified. I mean, I never saw a bit of remorse from him. Uh, and so I, I think that's why we're still seeing this action from him. And there are a lot of people, just like that Mari, that still feel that way that look at young people particularly young black and brown boys in this country as menaces to society and going to your point about how far we've come you know 20 years from Rodney King that was a pre- prevalent viewpoint then and clearly it's a prevalent viewpoint now
2: clearly it is a, pre- a prevalent viewpoint now because and uh we'll we'll go back to Jonathan Farrell's death when we when our caller calls yes. in but talking about Trayvon Martin you know yes. I brought up a story a couple weeks ago um, about Christopher Lane and this editorial right. of, you know, mm-hmm. if I had a son, would he look like Chris Lane? You know, that for some reason, Obama's statement, if I had a son, would he look like Trayvon Martin? People have just hinged onto that <laughs> and use that in different circumstances. Right. This week, the Navy Yard shooting killed 13 people. Aaron Alexis. Yes. Yes. He was a black man. Yes. But more importantly, he had mental health issues. The problem here is there was an internet meme, a Twitter meme going around of if Obama had a son, he would look like Aaron Alexis. Right. And that is problematic. Mm -hmm. And Don Lemon, the CNN anchor, had a conversation about this because he doesn't – the focus should not be on race here. The focus should be on his mental health issues. Right, This man – who was so mentally deranged that he shot 13 innocent people and killed them. He shot more than that, but killed 13 people. And I think that Don Lemon's points about mental health and how the African-American community in specific needs to deal with it. Is a very interesting question, which is why it's our tipping the scales of the week, of do you think the African-American community should more directly tackle mental health issues? Not just mass shooters, not just Aaron Alexis, Christopher Dorner, but also suicide, Lee Thompson Young, Don Cornelius.
1: Absolutely. Also, many I would say, too, because I talked about this on my radio show a couple of weeks ago, Marina, I had um, a special guest, a psychiatrist, uh, who also happened to be a black man, come on and talk about the stigma associated with mental health in the black community and that being the Primary reason That we don't address it. Uh, and oftentimes that's connected to this dichotomy that many in the black community feel exists between mental health and its assessment and treatment and religion. And for many in the black community, those things can't coexist. And so if you believe in God and you believe in spirituality, then you have to pray away mm-hmm. these mental demons. Um, and we, we're seeing that that's clearly not working. Uh, and also, you know, again, with many of my pa- uh, clients, I, they dealt with dual diagnosis, Mara. These are people that were using substance abuse to treat undiagnosed and untreated mental illness, and that is also very prevalent, uh, not just in the black community, but certainly in it as well.
2: And I think just in crime in general, black, white, whatever, it's mental health that we need to tackle. Mm. And our guest last week, Akila Shurils, His son died at the hands of gang violence. He doesn't want the murderer who is still out there to be imprisoned and sent to death. He wants that man to be rehabilitated. And the problem is there's so many resources going towards imprisonment and execution. And those resources could be going to in-prison rehabilitation and mental health facilities and programs to stop recidivism rates, to stop these things. And so I think mental health, black, white, whatever the issue is, is the underlying issue in so much of crime. And I want to read a quote by Don Lemon uh, that he said on his show, if we don't wake up to these realities, these realities being the realities of mental health issues, that we cannot pray it away. The next time we see a crime on the news, especially a mass shooting, the first question you might ask yourself, is it the usual one? Oh, no. Are they black? Mm -hmm. You know you all do it. I (laughs) hope they're not black. It might be the same one that the haters are posing on the internet right now. If Obama had a son, would he look like the killer? And I think that he took – that's a strong statement because he took what what became a terrible internet meme but was able to get people to understand the underlying issue of mental health. So again, our tipping the scales question of the week is do you think the African-American community in particular needs to address mental health issues more directly as opposed to you know religion, praying it away, different types of things? Do you think that would – make a difference in terms of crime in the criminal justice system.
1: Absolutely. I can't wait to see what the results are on that, Mara. I mean, I I will be very vocal in saying that I think it's uh, critical. I think
2: but it's I critical. just I don't think it's a race issue. That was kind of the problem. I mean, I think it's good that he's bringing it up. I don't think it's a race issue. I think the white community, too, everyone needs to address mental health. <laughs> yes, I mean, Mara,
1: that's the, true. But I will tell you the difference is, it, it, from my experience, um, there, uh, there is a space in white communities and, um, you know, just other more majority communities, Asian communities, where the, the stigma is just less attached. Again, and I think we're talking about black and brown communities because another community that deals with this, um, disproportionately is Latino communities. Again, because many times they are overwhelmingly Catholic. There's just this religious overtone to them that makes it very difficult for them to be Candid about their address of mental health, and and it's it's costing us.
2: But what's interesting to me is mo- most mass shooters We're are white. white. Yeah, they are, and so and they have mental health issues. Absolutely. I mean, the Aurora shooting, Newtown, Tucson, the Absolutely. Columbine, so so many yes. of these, yes. and. You know, there, there's an issue in the media of whether we should even be naming these killers by name, saying the name Aaron Alexis, whether that, you know, provokes these mass shootings. I don't think that's the issue. And, and gun control, yes, that is an issue. But to me, the biggest issue in this is mental, mental health. health and right. getting the funding to To get to the root cause of these issues. And so I think that I don't know how many times we need to have this conversation and more mass shootings to happen and happen and happen before the government and people realize that it is a mental health crisis. And that is what's the problem. Because yes, you can limit gun control or or you can, you know, restrict guns yeah. and their access to guns, but there's also the argument that they can use other things. If they yeah. if Bombs they want the, to, yeah. they, they have. have the access to it. The the marathon bombing, if they want it, they have access to it. The real issue in my mind is mental health. I know mm-hmm. we're going in a lot of different directions <laughs> today, getting yeah. all my views out there.
1: Yeah. Well, they're important, and, and I do think there is an intersection, like you said, between the mental health and the gun control and also, again, these underlying kind of racial tensions, they are existing as well, and that lead us to have these questions going all the way back to the shooting death of Jonathan Ferrell and what that means about our society. Absolutely. Well, I guess we can get started running our docket. I've uh, got a couple of uh, interesting uh, celebrity justice stories for you this week. Uh, we will start with... Uh Rapper Two Chains. Two Chains, uh surprisingly, I can't I know you can't believe this, Mari. Two Chains <laughs> arrested for marijuana. Oh my gosh. Uh Oklahoma City police officer pulled over a tour bus of the rapper, saying that it smelled overwhelmingly of marijuana. Uh the driver opened the door and uh eventually leading to the arrest of Two Chains himself and also eleven other people. Talk about an entourage. Uh so Tell us, like, you know, what are your thoughts on this, number one? Number two, like, do you think the rap industry is just glamorizing marijuana use to the point of ridiculousness? Or is this is this arrest going to even mean anything to that community?
2: My first thoughts on this was I love the fact that someone in the entourage held up a small pocket version of the U.S. Constitution pointing to the Fourth Amendment. Right. And they didn't get out of the tour bus. They the police could have warrantlessly searched this automobile. Everyone stayed they would not get off and they waited several hours on this bus for the police to get a valid search warrant before searching the the, the tour bus. Right. So I commend them in in doing that. Yeah. Um in terms of marijuana being glorified in The rap industry, I think there's a lot more drugs that the rap industry and especially the police need to be concerned about than marijuana.
1: Hmm, Interesting. Um, Especially the police department. I I, I hate all drugs, including marijuana. I think this is really bad. Again, though, like you said, I'm surprised the officers even waited for this warrant uh, because they didn't really need to.
2: No, they didn't, which is why, you know. I com- I, obviously, the reason they did is because these 11 people weren't going anywhere. Right. And they did not need to. Like you said, there is an automobile exce- exception. Yes. If they have probable cause and but be- they claim that the odor reeking the, oh, the from the marijuana, cause. that they could Absolutely. have warrantlessly searched this tour bus and the passengers on the tour bus. Mm. Oh, I oh. guess that means it's time for us to move on to the next topic. I was like, you didn't like my point. Thank you for that, Bill. Okay, we're we're trying to do something new here, uh, a la part of the interruption, <laughs> where we're trying right. to do two minutes for every single story. So uh, I'll, I bet you more than half the time it's going to be... On me when I'm talking, you're talking (laughs) about. Okay,
1: so moving on, uh, uh, I guess, I don't know, reggae pop singer Sean Kingston. uh, This is actually pretty serious. Looking at some civil charges related to a alleged gang rape uh, of him and and some of his uh, crew. The criminal charges concerning this were dropped when they decided that the victim was not Credible. Uh, but she's now going for with a five million dollar civil suit, again, alleging the forcible gang rape of Sean Kingston uh, back in a two- 2010 concert, saying she was invited to Sean's hotel for a meet and greet. Once she got there, he was waiting naked on his bed uh, that one of his bodyguards picked her up and placed her on top of him. Then she says that Kingston and his two bodyguards raped her. Uh, And she also admitted that she was pretty intoxicated, uh, admitting to 12 vodka shots and smoking weed, which she claims led her incapable of consent.
2: That, to me, is the key issue. And I'm wondering why there were no criminal charges, why this is a civil suit, because she went to the hospital and her injuries were consistent with rape and. When you're drunk, you cannot give consent. People have a hazy idea about this. Mm-hmm. It's clear. If you're drunk, you cannot give consent. Right. And so the fact that this is not a criminal case but a civil suit mm-hmm. in my mind is the first strike, you know, the first sadness about this case and you know, also the idea of fans and and famous people and how far is too far. And it's just sad to me because one area where I think we have not progressed is rape. We've we've seen Steubenville. We've seen um, so many of these rape cases where the there's victim blaming going on.
1: Well, there is, but I'll I'll, I'll play devil's advocate to this one, Mari. The police are saying that she's got credibility issues. Now, I'm not looking at the file. Wait, wait, hear me out. I'm not looking at the file. But I will say it's very, very difficult to charge and convict uh, on rape. And that's the problem. But but that's the truth, because oftentimes there's not any real evidence. And and sometimes things that look like physical rape evidence sometimes could be just evidence of forcible sex or, excuse me, you know, rough sex, as they say. And. A, a DA. But if can't she was drunk, trial, she can't consent. That's fine. But we don't know what her other credibility issues are. It might not be a consent issue. If she just, in general, it can be attacked on credibility, the DA is not going to touch this with a 10 foot pole. Moving on. One time roommate and friend of Lady Gaga is claiming that after she served as her personal assistant for over a year to this, you know, I would say Gaga's probably the biggest pop star uh, of, of our day, uh, maybe rival with Beyonce. Anyway, she's claiming that Gaga cheated her out of overtime wages. Uh, she wants to tell her story to her jury. Uh, she says they, they can decide whether or not, uh, she was indeed owed the overtime that she is alleging. So, very interesting. Looks like in terms of the money, uh, she's asking, I guess there was a $50,000 annual pay rate, which, by the way, seemed low to me. Like, your Lady Gaga's public assistant, uh, Personal assistant, and you're only getting 50 grand a year. Okay. She mm-hmm.
2: ended up getting 75 grand a whoa, year the second time she whoa, came back. <laughs> oh,
1: shoot. Now, break out the Lubitans. Okay. So, <laughs> um, $75,000 a year. But all that to say, with Gaga earning as much as $80 million at the top half of this year, it still pales in comparison. So, I I, I don't know. She's claiming that she's owed money for ov- non payment due to overtime. But I don't know. Maybe she's just kind of pissed that the salary's low in general.
2: Obviously, this case is severe enough that it wasn't dismissed, which at first I thought it would be dismissed. And a trial judge said it can go to the jury in November. So that was surprising to me. But this – the biggest thing I take away from this is you don't mix friends in business. This was a friend and former roommate. And a lot of these things that she's claiming were her job, Lady Gaga in her mind could have thought was being a friend. They shared a bed in a hotel room often and Mm -hmm. Lady Gaga would – Fall asleep to a DVD and say, "Can you get up and turn off the DVD?" Right. To me, that's a friendship thing. To her, that was a work thing. Like, "Oh, will Girl. you get up and turn off the DVD for me? I'm sleeping." Like, not to me, but I'm saying there's <laughs> there's a line between her. I don't abuse my friends. Don't I was gonna worry, say Mari. But remind me line. not to come sleep
1: over at your house because I'm but not turning she's complaining
2: off. Complaining about a damn it's thing. Like, <laughs> she's complaining like, "Oh, she made me take turn off her DVD at night. Oh, she made me like carry her luggage." You are a personal assistant and. I don't know. This is why you're not mixing friends and business because there probably was a, a blurred line between <laughs> are you being a friend right now or are you being paid for this right now?
1: Well, I I, I don't know that I buy that premise, Mari, but I will say it's sellable. It's sellable to a jury and because it's sellable, like you said, that's why the case wasn't dismissed and could cons- essentially move forward. All right. Well, this was fun. Did you like that? Did you like the buzzing?
2: Yes, because I had to speak my mind even faster than I normally do. <laughs> exactly. And it, but okay, I, it's going to be hard for me to just like be like, oh, and I don't want to add one more thing. One more thing. I, I oh, you're I'm, cheating now, I'm Mari. I'm cheating only because I'm looking forward to this trial. I can't believe that it's not being settled because most people settle these cases. Most of these high-profile celebrities settle them because they don't want their private life and to be out on the public. Being it might end
1: settled before. Yes.
2: But if it's not, I would love to get that view into Lady Gaga and what she's actually like, Stefani Germanotta. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could
1: see her deposition Can you now. imagine yeah. her
2: on stand? Yeah. Could you imagine? Yeah.
1: I just want to see the deposition tape. That would probably do it yeah. for me. That's exciting. All right. So apparently, um, you know, obviously, uh, attorney Chris Chestnut, the office, uh, attorney in the case uh, of, of the week for us, he's on the East Coast. It looks like I was getting some text messages from him during the program. He was in a meeting. He was trying to call in desperately. This is not the last time we will talk about that case. this case at all. We will definitely definitely uh be keeping you abreast every step of the way from whether you know the grand jury indictment to the arraignment of this officer and moving forward. so uh we'll definitely get this attorney on the program soon and uh, can't wait to see how this thing unfolds.
2: yes, and um I want to say two things next week, we have a very special guest joining us, Mark Gios, oh, who oh. is attorney to several of the stars that we talk about on this show often. Chris Chris Brown, Brown. (laughs) Mike Tyson, lots of people. So it'll be a very interesting interview. And also, please, everyone, go on to iTunes, rate us, five stars, comment, comment, comment. comment.
1: Even if you disagree, that's always fun, too. Uh, We love to reach your comments on air and address those.
2: We try to respond to everyone. YouTube, if you leave your comments, we will respond to you. So thank you so much for listening and join us next week.
0: From producers Maria Manunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svite, Dario Christen, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. If you have questions or comments, tweet us at BHL online or email us at info@blackhollywoodlive.com. For more exclusive content, visit blackhollywoodlive.com. This has been a presentation of the Black Hollywood Live Network.